Not so long ago, most HRs might have been forgiven for thinking they weren't likely to have to worry about industrial action. But 2016 has seen a great deal of unrest. Thousands of operations have been cancelled across England because of the first strike by junior doctors for... Southern Rail and the RMT are heading for a new and potentially even more serious dispute. RMT members... Have well, the uh, post office is closed today because CW people are on strike. Uh, that's been a pay rise for our members since 2000. Yet another strike started at midnight. Three days of it. The NHS, the Post Office, London Underground and Southern Rail. They've all seen disputes on pay, working hours and all conditions. And the retail and higher education sectors have seen their share of troubles too. HR's role in building and maintaining healthy relations with unions is key. But balancing the needs of employees with the needs of their organisation is a testing business. So, to shed some light, I've been speaking to two men with a great deal of experience in this area. David Widdison is a partner at the law firm Abbis Cadres, and Jeremy Gautry is an industrial relations and change management specialist. Here's Jeremy's take on why we've seen so many disputes in recent months. I think it's probably to say that we are living in very difficult financial times at the moment, and I think that that has had a pressure on the bottom line, uh, and employers are looking to maximise uh, yield, uh, and that uh, potentially does affect how people uh, work. I mean, many contracts, for example, that exist um, are being reviewed and looked at again, and um, and that may cause conflict within the, work, in the work, within the workplace. David, it may be the case that there have been more days lost to industrial action um, th- this year. But um, I'm not sure that the industry sectors in which industrial action is taking place have expanded particularly. Uh, We are still largely in public sector, uh, transport, and you see see very little evidence of uh, industrial action becoming a feature in some of the um, the newer industries, or indeed amongst uh, younger people. So you generally think this is a post-economic downturn uh, event? as employers try to get themselves back on their feet and, and review pay, terms, conditions? No, I think actually there's a more of a move to modernise contracts. I think there's a lot of the contracts and terms that have been uh, exist have been around for a long time. And there's um, if people are looking at what's happening elsewhere and saying, well, you know, do we need to change? There's a desire to be more competitive and it's ensuring that uh, the contracts that workers have are competitive in the current, in the current uh, workplace. This is largely a drive to modernise, become more competitive, and as we enter more uncertain economic times with Brexit looming, then the environment within which um, employers are operating is likely to become even more keenly competitive, uh, and that will require uh, uh, almost a continuous process of change so far as the workforce is concerned. Where are we at on union membership now? Generally speaking, union membership has been declining over many years. As we've seen the public sector reduce and, and greater outsourcing, there has been a reduction, overall reduction in membership. But, of course, that has led to uh, a shift towards more towards the private sector. Membership's just creeping up in the private sector, isn't it? It has been for a while. Yes, it is. So, should we move to common issues for industrial disputes then? Because we've mentioned zero hours, pay, working conditions, issues around minimum wage. I mean, what are the big ones you think that are really key here? 
I mean, as you've seen from the uh, from the uh, the doctors' dispute, the process by which an employer wants to very significantly change contracts of employment and working conditions is one which is a very fertile ground for industrial action. What about zero hours? Big big area of discussion this year. Yes, it is, and uh, you know, zero hours contracts. Generally speaking, there's a lot of ba- bad publicity around them. Uh, they um, do allow people to sometimes be exploited. But on the other hand, there are many people that actually enjoy uh, the benefits of zero hours contracts. So I think you have to balance it. Yeah, I mean, they clearly are um, pros and cons to those, but I think they, they've almost become characterised as a bad thing now, haven't they, in terms of media coverage? And organisations are certainly almost, I think it's fair to say, getting to the point where it's embarrassing to be using them. And even if they work commercially, and even if you do have staff who might even be asking for them, it's awkward to actually use that form of contract. Yes, I mean it's been it's it's been very uh, heavily politicised. It's been picked up by by Labour as a political issue. It's picked up by the unions as a political issue, uh, and then by the Tories. And the Tories have legislated um, to a very limited extent in the field. But uh, what you don't hear the uh, the trade unions saying anything about, as, as Jeremy said, are the very significant numbers of people, if you look at the CIPD survey, for example, very significant numbers of people who are very satisfied with the zero hours contracts and would not change. But do we think they'll survive? I don't see any political initiative to outlaw them, like in New Zealand, for example. I think that's um, that's that's likely to be a long way off. I mean, I, I, a lot might depend on what happens in the Labour Party if uh, if it's expected Jeremy Corbyn is is elected as leader, and if he were to win the next election, I imagine some sort of legislation in this area would be uh, would be uh, quite high on his agenda, but, but you know, the likelihood of that is not great. Well, no, moment, but there's we corporate reputation to consider, Yes, there it? is. That's absolutely right, yes. That, that's, that is a different issue. But a pressing uh, one. But the uh, the issue of choice, I think, is um, is, is what, I, what I take from the CIPD survey and the, the various other uh, stats that have been around this. Is, is It is an issue of choice. There are undoubtedly some abuses where people are compelled to accept zero-hours contracts or have no work at all. But equally, there are obviously many people who are very happy with that as a system of working. I think we can get uh, over-focused on, on, on zero-hours contracts. And, you know, there has been a, a casualisation of the workforce generally over, t- over time. Uh, unions, of course, find it difficult to organize uh, around that because uh, you know where there are sort of permanent employees is much easier to get in and, and organize amongst them where you have much fluid workforce that's more difficult I think we'll be careful though because um, we, we can be we can sort of paint the picture that everything's doom and gloom the reality though in uh, the majority of areas that there are good employee relations between uh, trade unions and employers uh, and then on a day-to-day basis uh, those relationships are, are beneficial uh, to both the company and to the people working in that company. Well, absolutely. I mean, that brings me to the next question I had in mind, actually, which was the unions themselves. I and mean, obviously, Unite's by far the biggest. We've got Unison. How would you both characterise their approach in terms of negotiations and interactions with employers now? Is it different to what it was maybe 20, 30 years ago? I think that varies. That would certainly be my experience. Um, I mean, you only have to look at Nissan, for example, in, in Sunderland, the best performing production line in the uh, in the in Europe now, and uh, uh, and that is the product of cooperative working between unions and management. It's an excellent example of that. Let me ask you about the TUC, because obviously, you know, it's a federation. It represents a whole raft of unions. How would you characterise the TUC's approach? I think it's very difficult to characterise unions because it depends on the industry. For example, a union such as Unite has such a broad membership, you know, some in the public sector, some many in the private sector in different types of industries. And, you know, generally speaking, unions tend to 
represent the interests of their members. And if their members are relatively militant, then then there might maybe a greater militancy. On the other hand, if they if this is not a back a history behind that, then they might be more willing to or less willing to take action. I think the TUC, you know, um, historically has been the umbrella organisation for for unions uh, and has uh, ineffectively represented collectively quite well the interests of those unions in terms of discussions with, with government and campaigning. I mean, if you're suggesting that the, the quality of dialogue between unions and employers is sector-specific, what can, what can HR do to make sure that's as positive as possible? I think there, there are several key factors in terms of any good employee relation. And that is, first is um, there has to be trust between uh, the employer and the and, and the trade unions. They have a, a relationship where they can trust each other, that they know, know that someone's not going to pull something out of the bag and, and, and cause a difficult situation in a discussion. Uh, there needs to be openness in that relationship and there needs to be respect. Respect from the trade union in terms of the, um, the employer's position, but also from the employer to respect that the trade unions are representing uh, the, their workers. I think one of the, the problems I've seen in, in poor employee relations is that quite often the trade union sees the problem as someone else's problem. That's because there's traditionally been a lack of, lack of stakeholder engagement uh, between the employer and uh, trade unions, where it's like the, the employer's got the problem. No, actually, everybody's got their problem. So if profits are down, for example, in a company, the company's got a problem, but that affects the employees as well. So it's and sharing ownership. Of it's sharing issues. ownership. And, and, and that comes from good early engagement, uh, ensuring that you know, where there are issues, they're discussed early uh, with trade unions, uh, that, that there are structures in place within those companies to ensure that uh, both sides feel that where they, they can talk about issues and they can actually resolve issues, but also ensuring that, we, that they, they don't take the baggage of previous discussions forward into significant changes. And you know, quite often when there's major change in a company, the relationship can break down because it's not robust enough in the first place and quite often employers look to say well this is what we want to do without actually recognizing that actually there might be a, a list of issues that could be resolved w- with their employees so uh, everybody comes out sort of with a satisfactory conclusion. David? The the flow of information I think is important as well in the old days certainly my experience was that employers often acted on a kind of need-to-know basis and they would only disclose if there was a very good reason for doing so, whereas one might say that a much better approach if one is looking at the sort of partner, partnering arrangement that Jeremy speaks about would be to disclose all information unless there's a very good reason why not. And that kind of cultural shift is, to my mind, key to a, to a, a successful relationship between unions and the company in, in, in the modern age. It makes companies much more agile and it gets away from the old adversarial approach to a much more collaborative approach where it doesn't necessarily mean agreement uh, all the time but as Jeremy says everybody's basically after the same end they want a, they want a prosperous company where people's jobs are safe secure and rewarding in every sense of the word and I suppose one might say that um, in the 80s and perhaps the 90s the sort of return uh, the return of reward to um, uh, from a in an organization has not favoured the, the, the workforce. Up until that point, one might say that uh, the rewards were more evenly shared, but uh, some of the um, statistical information you see sees an awful lot more being taken out by the owners of a company and less given to the employees. So that is a, a trend which uh, I would suggest employers would want to 
uh, try and shift if they're going to if if they're going to uh, look forward to successful employee relations going forward. So transparency, authentic conversations. We've also got legislation, haven't we, changing the relationship between employers and unions this year, the Trade Union Act this year. How will that change things? Fundamentally, I don't think it's actually going to change the relationship much at all because um, at the end of the day, if there's a relationship with the employer already, that's not going to change because of uh, a piece of legislation coming in. It will, cha- it will change how industrial action ballots are conducted uh, and, and action is taken, but ultimately uh, it's not going to change the relationship. No, I agree. Not significant. Nearly all these strikes that have taken place over the last few years would have passed the ballot tests quite comfortably. So bearing in mind that the ideal scenario here is the avoidance of conflict and dispute and certainly the avoidance of industrial action, what can HR be doing now to avoid difficulties in the future? We have an uncertain at least two or three years, probably longer, ahead of us in economic terms, regardless of where people are working. What should they be doing now? Well, I think if there was ever a time to pursue a partnering style of industrial relations, it's now. Uh, as you say, there may be some quite choppy waters ahead. Uh, there may be lots of opportunities as well. And um, the opportunities which arise are likely to be ones which, which um, uh, industry is going to have to uh, respond to quite quickly. I'd agree. Um, you know, collaborative working together arrangements uh, really do, can work. And they, uh, there are many examples where they have worked. Uh, and I think it's important that, um, certainly for HR professionals, uh, that they uh, look at the structures they have in place for uh, negotiating and bargaining with the unions uh, and they show that they're fit for purpose. Uh, they also look at the relationship uh, they have. Um, and, you know, quite a number of companies have gone for joint training of managers and, 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 and trade union representatives uh, and have looked at behavioural competences around what are good behaviours for, for uh, trade union reps and managers. And those are things that all can be looked at. Uh, in building an effective relationship, but also I think it's being thinking a little bit out of the box to a certain extent. You know, for example, if a company was to, wants to uh, halve the number of uh, offices it has and, and downsize the number of staff it is, that's clearly going to present a, th- a threat to a trade union, for example. But sometimes you need to look at what are the opportunities that, that, that an employer can give to uh, employees. So whilst there might be less jobs. Might there be better jobs and not upskilled jobs, relocation, better uh, terms for redundancy so to, to ensure that the employer gives a trade union a dilemma uh, in terms of if, is there something on the table that's worth keeping on the table? Because if you go on and take industrial action, those terms may be taken off the table. You've both seen industrial conflict at close hand. Would you say, based on your experience, that the HR professionals you encountered were equipped to deal with those scenarios or is there a space for more learning and development there? I think there's always more space for learning and development. Um, (laughs) Is there a need? (laughs) Historically in some of the big set piece trade union battles there have been I'm not sure that uh, either side has distinguished itself by its its competence in those areas but uh, yeah there's always room for improvement but it's a changing world that's the point so it it does mean moving away from uh, if you're an excellent adversarial negotiator in the old days, a good, hard-nosed type, which, you know, Jeremy, you would have seen many of, I'm sure. That is not necessarily the skill set you need going forward. You'll find more about how to build strong, constructive relationships with unions on the website, cipd.co.uk. Next up, something brand new, groundbreaking plans for national standards on diversity and inclusion. What will they look like and what will they mean for employers and for HR? I'll be talking to some of the key players who've been meeting behind closed doors for the
the last couple of years to find out. Hear all about it in next month's podcast. It goes live on December 6th.